morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. As Joanna mentioned, we are starting a new message series today entitled R-Rated. We're going to look at what it is that God uh, has restricted and why uh, He has restricted some things. A couple weeks ago, I was running a movie from Redbox, and uh, this restricted icon popped up asking me if I was at least 17 years or older. And uh, I was surprised because I didn't think the movie I was running was R-rated. And so I, I checked, and somehow I had pushed the wrong button on the screen and had added an R-rated movie to my cart. So kind of changed that and was able to go on without the restriction. But the question is, who decides which movies are restricted to those under the age of 17 and which are unrestricted, which are okay for everyone to watch? Well, it's a highly secretive organization called the Classification and Ratings Administration, you probably have seen this logo all kinds of times and never you really noticed this group in the middle of it, but they're the ones that determine the ratings of movies. And the Raiders serve a seven-year term, and their identities are kept completely confidential. Uh, in order to serve on this group, you have to have children between the ages of 5 and 15 at the time that you begin your seven-year term. And then at the end of seven years, um, if you haven't... Um, been kicked off earlier. There have been some situations apparently where people have been asked to leave, and they have, but uh, if you are go the full length, it'll be seven years. Now, movies that get uh, an R rating, a restricted rating, are usually restricted because of things like violence or language or sexual content. Now, the reason, obviously, for the restrictions is an awareness of the damage that these words and these images can do to a young mind. But apparently, the day you turn 17, something magical happens. <laughs> On that day, a movie that was restricted just the day before is suddenly available to you. And the assumption is that by the time you're 17 years old, you will be able to make wise decisions about what you should restrict yourself from seeing. Now, we may debate whether that's really going to happen when someone turns 17, but it reflects an awareness that really all of us understand, and that is a key part of maturity is the ability to recognize what is harmful and to restrict yourself from it. Right now, my grandson is crawling around, and he is grabbing everything unrestricted and putting it in his mouth. You know, as he gets older, he's going to learn there's some things you just don't stick in your mouth. And that just goes on until we get mature enough to the point where we, we can look out on our world and say, you know what? That's not going to be helpful for me. That's going to that's hurt me. And I'm going to restrict myself from that. That's just a part of maturity, part of growing up. But we are living right now in a time of tremendous restriction, confusion, and upheaval. In the last decade alone, moral restrictions that have stood literally for millennia have been removed. And the march to abolish more and more restrictions has tremendous momentum right now. And this is reflected in part in the change in the movie ratings system, uh, something that people have identified as ratings creep. And what that means is much of what used to be rated R now shows up in PG-13 movies, and it kind of continues to go down. And the reason for this ratings creep in the movies and really the ratings creep in our culture is because there's something much more powerful at work in our culture than just the classification and ratings administration. And that powerful entity is culture itself. Culture is defined as a shared set of values. It's us collectively. It's what we value in totality. What we consider to be important, not, not just on paper, 
but in our hearts that shows up in our behaviors. And out of these common set of shared values comes common behavior in a culture. And common language reflects our values. Social structures and government and art all reflect these common values over time. Now, when a person decides that they're going to follow Jesus Christ, they are deciding to live their lives by the values that God has described in the pages of the Bible. And so, in a sense, they're, they're deciding to live differently in whatever culture they find themselves in. And the challenge is this. There is no culture in this world that is an exact overlay of what God values. And that's because, well, as we talked about last Easter or last Sunday, if you were here on Easter, we are sinful and broken people. Everyone's like that. We're like that. And so you get us all together, our shared values are not going to line up with God's values. And so the challenge for us who have decided to follow Christ is to live the values that God has said are important and what he says is true in a culture that in various ways just doesn't agree with that. So our theme verse for this series is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Here's what it says. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The pattern of this world is whatever culture we find ourselves in. Now, like every pattern, there is structure and thought to it. And God sits above every culture around the world and throughout time. And he tells us, this is what is true, and this is what is valuable. Now, cultures have the freedom to decide whatever they think is valuable and even pass laws that reflect it. But what God says will stand the test of time and will bring us blessing not only in this life, but in the life to come. Cultures don't always bring us blessing. Because it's just a collective idea of what we all think, and, and we're changing and moving. And sometimes culture has a set of ideas that causes tremendous damage. And that's why God sits over culture and says, you need to guide your life by what I say is true, and by what I say is valuable, not what your culture says is valuable. Now, if we allow God to renew our mind and think about life, not according to the pattern of whatever culture we were raised in, what will happen if we do that is we will experience personally God's good and pleasing will. The idea is we will test it and we will find it to be approving. This will be good. Now, my goal in this series is to offer you a thoughtful analysis of our culture, and what is going on right now at this point in our culture, and then to explore what God has restricted and why he has restricted it. God puts restrictions there for our protection and for our benefit. And we're going to look at what those restrictions are in light of what our culture is thinking right now. But before we dive into some of the particular issues, I, I want to step back a little further this morning, and I want to take a look at culture itself, the nature of culture, and why it is that we can feel very strongly about something that we may not have really thought that carefully about. First, we're going to look at the power of culture this morning in two specific ways. First of all, first of all culture has the power to shape us. It shapes us. I was 19 when I had my first cross-cultural experience, went to a different country, a different culture. I spent a summer in the Philippines. And here's a picture of me getting off the plane in Manila at age 19. I don't remember who took this picture. It almost looks like I had my 
uh, photographer with me or something to capture the picture as I was coming off the plane. But I, I remember, when I look at that picture, I remember what I was thinking when I walked down those steps. This was before jet ramps, and I walked down the steps at the Manila Airport there. I was thinking, I can't breathe. It's so hot, I've never experienced anything like this. But the temperature wasn't the only thing that turned out to be very different in the Philippines. The, the personal space buffer zone that I had grown up with, that, that 18 to 20-inch zone that we all kind of recognize, was gone. I mean, people were coming up to me and talking to me eight inches from my face, and I would back off, and they would just keep coming forward <laughs> until I hit a wall or someone else. And I mean, it didn't take me very long to just, like, get me out of here. I, I got I to gotta have some space. I got to breathe. Kids would, would just come up to me, that strange kids on the street that I didn't know, and they would grab a hold of my arms and start feeling my hair because apparently Filipino men don't, don't have hair on there. And so they, they didn't, they'd never seen or hadn't really experienced this, and they just, who are you? They, they would just grab a hold of me and start kind of checking out the hair on my arms. And as I got to know more and more Filipinos that summer, I, I encountered some ideas that I'd never heard of. I remember talking to one guy. And I asked him what the medallion was around his neck. He goes, oh, it's keeping me alive. What do you mean it's keeping you alive? He said, no, no, this, this is a charm that was put on me when I was born. And if I ever take this off, I will die. This was a guy about my age, and he was intelligent. He was going to college in the area. And I said, are you, are you like so when you shower? I mean, you, you never take it off? No, if I take it off, I will die. He was convinced about that. Why? Well, that's what I was taught growing up. It's what he had experienced growing up. It's what people around him believed. Now, this experience, it shook my world. I began to wonder, well, how much of what I value and how much of what I believe went no deeper than my cultural context that I'd grown up in? And so that summer raised all kinds of questions in my mind. And I ended up spending the next two years investigating what other cultures in the world believed. And the reason I did that is because I realized if, if I was going to build a life, I mean, I was 19 at this point, if I was going to build a life, it better be on something more solid than just whatever was popular at the time in the place where I grew up and in the family that I was a part of. You see, until that summer, I had begun to think of myself as a rather intelligent and independent thinker. And that summer I realized, I don't think I've had an independent thought ever. Almost everything I think I've, I've heard and people have told me. And so I decided I, I need to step outside of my culture and, and, and get a look at who I am and what's true and what's really going on around here. You see, culture is kind of like pickle juice. You know, every pickle starts out as a cucumber. I don't know if you knew this, but every pickle starts out as a cucumber. And a cucumber is turned into a pickle how? Well, it's put into a jar that's full of brine, has all kinds of ingredients in it, and it's left to soak. And over time, the brine, the juice, oozes into the pores of that cucumber, and it changes the flavor of that cucumber. It turns it into a pickle. The cucumber is, as we say, pickled at that point. If you were to bite into the cucumber, it wouldn't taste like a cucumber. It tastes like a pickle. Whatever the flavor of the brine is would be what you would taste. So I use this analogy because I think this is really what happens to us when we are raised in any culture. We are born cucumbers, 
and raised in a jar of our own culture. And the, the brine of whatever our culture values just kind of oozes into the pores of our heart. Now, the thing is, like me, when I was 19, I didn't see the jar. I didn't recognize that I'd been soaking in a set of values and beliefs. I, I just thought it was what I thought. And I thought it was true. We think that whatever the jar is, that that's, well, that's just the way it is. That's the way it should be. That's what's right. Now, it turns out there's many different kinds of brine, pickle juice, just like there's many different kinds of cultures. I mean, there's jalapeno pickles, there's kosher dills, there's sweet pickles. I mean, you can, you can put a cucumber in all kinds of different brines and have it taste very, very differently. And it's the same thing with cultures. Now, it is a very powerful thing for a person to see the jar that they were raised in, to recognize not just the impact it's had on them from childhood, but the impact that the jar that they are in continues to have on them. Now, as I said, if you become a Christian, if you decide to follow Christ, you have agreed to live by a different set of values. The problem is you're still pickled. Now, you, if you're um, jalapeno dill, that, if that's the culture that you were raised in and you decide to follow Christ, well, scratch below the surface of that decision and still the values that ooze out of the pores of your own heart is the culture that, that you were raised in and really the culture that you're still a part of. And you see evidence of this throughout Scripture. Peter is a good example of this. He was one of Jesus' top disciples. And so he heard firsthand, front row, what Jesus taught on all kinds of things. And he agreed with it. That's why he decided to follow Jesus. But when it came to some critical decisions, the, the fact that Peter had been pickled in the Jewish culture rose to the surface. Here's one example of it in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It says, the Apostle Paul is writing this, first century church planner, and says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from Jews, or from James, rather, he used to eat with the Gentiles. See, James was a fellow Jew. But before, he used to eat with the Gentiles, before they came. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the Jewish brothers. Now, why did Peter change his eating habits? Well, in the Jewish culture, Jews never ate with Gentiles. Gentiles ate all of that unclean food. Jews had very strict food laws. But Jesus had declared all foods to be clean now. Peter was there when Jesus did this. He agreed with it. But the problem was, Peter had still been pickled in the Jewish culture. And to eat with Gentiles, well, he risked being rejected by his culture. And that's a very, very powerful fear. This is why culture shapes us. It's because if we decide to step outside the jar, there's a price to be paid. There's rejection. There's isolation. And if you've decided to follow Jesus, you know this fear already. I mean, the further our culture moves away from what God values, the greater the tension grows. I mean, I, I don't want to be rejected by my culture. I don't want to be thought of as unthinking when I'm not. I don't want to be thought of as unloving when I'm not. But that's the power of culture and the power it has over us. And this is why when it comes to changing our values, we don't have the power really just to make an independent decision and become 
different people at the pickle juice level. We don't just change on our own. If you decide to follow Jesus Christ, this is why the church is such an important part of this. It's, it's not just an independent decision. We can't change unless we begin to be a part of a different culture that has a different set of values that we share. That's the power that culture has to shape us. Now, part of this power to shape us means that culture also has the power to blind us. It's entirely possible for us to be very, very convinced about something that we think is true and be completely wrong. That's the power that culture has. It can blind us. In Matthew 24, 38 through 39, Jesus describes what was going on during the days when Noah was building his ark. He says, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking. You know, they were eating whatever that culture ate and they were drinking whatever that culture drank. They were marrying and giving in marriage. That's what cultures do. They have ways of doing marriage. And up to the day, up to the day Noah entered the ark, this was going on. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man is a term Jesus used to refer to himself. Now, what, what strikes me most about what Jesus said here in recalling this time is the phrase, they knew nothing about what was to come. Now, that's, that's amazing. How, I mean, how is that possible? Just think about it. There was a giant ark project being built right in front of their eyes. Now, they had to have asked Noah, what is this? And why are you doing this? But the answer, whatever Noah said, had no impact on them. Why? Well, they numbered in the millions. And Noah and his family, how many were they? Eight. And when you've got millions on your side, eight, well, they're just weird. So in 1 Peter 3.20, we read this about that majority before the flood. It said, they were those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. You know, Part of the purpose behind that giant ark project was to give people time to consider their ways. So God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. But what ended up happening in it? Only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. So that culture ignored the warning of God, and they continued to disobey. And then one day, suddenly, everything changed. And Jesus says, this is how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. And what he's saying is, when I return to wrap up history, this is exactly what's going to be going on. What he's saying is, that wasn't the first time the majority were wrong, and it's not going to be the last time. Now, whenever you're surrounded by an entire culture that is disobeying God, it, it's very easy to become blind to God's ways and just not even see what he says. Now, currently, the pickle juice of our culture contains an idea that was first added to the brine during the sexual revolution back in the 1960s. And the idea clearly stated is this, love should not be restricted. That's the key idea that was added then, love should not be restricted. Up to that point, we all understood, no, love needs to have restrictions. But at that point, that idea was introduced. And it has taken decades for this new idea to flavor everything but in the last 10 years, as many restrictions have fallen in this area, it's clear that the ideas that were first added to the brine back in the 1960s during the sexual revolution 
have now become mainstream. It's now the dominant flavor of our culture. And so for most people in our culture right now, when they think of sexual matters, they look out on the sexual terrain and it, it looks like this to the average person right now. Here's a picture of the prairies up in Saskatchewan. Now, our family lived on this prairie when I was young. In fact, our backyard, as we walked out our back door, it looked just like this. I mean, it was just literally miles and miles of flat, open prairie. And so my brother and I would spend a lot of time exploring these prairie lands. And you know, when we would walk out our back door and we had some time to run around and go exploring, we would often stand there at the edge of that great prairie and just kind of look around and decide which way we wanted to go. And it really didn't matter which way we wanted to go because it was pretty much all <laughs> about the same. It was just flat and it just went on as far as the eye could see. So it didn't matter what direction we went. So the decision about which way we should go was directed solely about, well, what we felt like doing that day, the whims that we felt, wherever we wanted to go. The prairie was wide open to be explored by the ever-changing whims of our freedom. We had all kinds of freedom. And I, I say this because this is what the sexual terrain looks like in the minds of most people. Because if it looks like this, well, then it, it doesn't matter which way you go. You can go this way for a while, go that way for a while. You can do whatever you want. It's all the same. So explore away. And so our cultural mantra now, mantra now has become this. Do whatever you feel like doing as long as, what is it? It doesn't hurt anyone. Right? I mean, that's, we hear that all the time now. I mean, because the only danger on the prairie is you might run over somebody. I mean, it, it, nothing's dangerous about the prairie. They just, just don't hurt people. Just don't run over people. That, that's what we see right now in our culture. Then for us as a family, after living in Saskatchewan for a number of years, we moved to Oregon. The terrain went from looking like that to looking like this. Very different terrain. And it didn't take long for my brother and I to figure out that our days of wandering around <laughs> wherever we felt like going had come to an end. Why? Were we any less free in Oregon than we were in Saskatchewan? No, in fact, we were a little older. We actually had more freedom. What had happened is the terrain had changed. There were mountains that well, we were told you didn't want to get stranded on. There were rivers that we didn't want to fall into and get carried away by the current. We were warned that these currents are very swift. You don't want to fall into these rivers. And there were cliffs that, you know, the ground on the edge were pretty unstable. You didn't want to get very close to those or you'd step off and fall down. And I show you these images because here's the question. If the moral terrain looks like Saskatchewan, then there should be no trails that restrict anyone's freedom. But if the moral terrain is more like Oregon, then it would be really wise to limit our freedom and stick to the trails. So the question then that we have to ask is, are we living in moral Saskatchewan or moral Oregon? What, what is the terrain really like? What is it really, what's really going on in the moral world? Well, there's two basic ways to answer that question. Either you can read a map, 
for example, the map that God has provided in the Bible that describes the moral terrain, or you can just go exploring. Most people choose the second option. They go exploring. And since the revolution of the 1960s, the sexual revolution, there has been more sexual exploring going on in our culture. And what's beginning to show up now in the sociological data is a tremendous amount of pain. I mean, it's what you would expect. It's what you would expect if you took a prairie approach to mountain terrain. You'd expect, well, a lot of pain, a lot of bodies. And the pain data has become so compelling that sociologists now have identified something they call the success sequence. This is a phrase they came up with. These are not Christians. These, these are, this is a common sociological term now. It's called the success sequence. And here's the sequence. You go to school, and by school they mean get a college degree, then you get married, then you have kids. What they, what they found is that when people do this, the, the way, way, any way you count success, the numbers are through the roof different from those who either don't do these or do these out of sequence. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this. We're talking about trends in society. But this is so compelling that they've, called, they've named it the success sequence. That sounds like a trail, doesn't it? Do this, and then go here, and then go here. That, that's a trail. In fact, it's an old, old trail, one that God has marked out in the pages of the Bible. Now, the first step in God's word is honor authority, not school. But, you know, that's really a lot of what goes on in college. I mean, you don't graduate with a bachelor's degree if you're unwilling to follow authority. I mean, out of all that you learn in college, one of the things that you have to do is follow authority. If you're a knothead, you don't get a degree. They'll take your money as many years as you want to pay tuition, but they will not graduate you unless you do enough of what the teacher says. So honor authority. Then God says, get married. Then have kids. It's what the Bible's been saying for millennia. But, but here's the challenge. When you're in the middle of a crowd of millions and the crowd is rushing in the same moral direction, it's just not just hard, it's pretty much impossible to see the cliff that's coming. You, you just can't see it. You're blinded by, well, the pickle juice. So that brings us to a second consideration. And that is, so how do we respond to this? What should our response be to culture, those of us who've decided to follow Christ. I want to recommend two as we wrap up. First, a personal response and then a public response. First, personally, do not conform. This is what our theme verse says. Let me read it again. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What it says is do not conform any longer. The idea is this is what we all do. We've been conforming. That's what we do naturally. That's because it takes no effort to be pickled. You just have to sit and soak. You just have to watch enough TV, watch enough movies, talk to enough people. And over time, you're going to think and you're going to act exactly like the culture that you're in. That, that's the way we all are. So we're not, we're not supposed to just sit and soak any longer if we've decided to follow Christ. We're now supposed to engage in a process that's identified in this verse as being transformed. The Greek word that's used here in the New Testament is metamorphos. 
we are supposed to be completely transformed from the inside out. That, that takes effort. That doesn't happen naturally. Pickling, just sit and soak. Transforming, well, sitting and soaking isn't going to transform anybody. That requires effort. And it starts from the inside. You have to start by renewing your mind. You know, the human mind has the unique ability to think independently of its surroundings. It's what occurred to me when I went to the Philippines. And for the first time, I stepped outside of my culture and I looked at the jar. That's part of what the human mind can do. But it has to choose to do that, to think independently of its surroundings. So we have to think outside of our pickle jar and evaluate the juice of our culture by comparing it to what God says is true. And then we need to move beyond new thoughts and agreeing with these new thoughts to new actions that reflect these new thoughts. That's what it means when it says we test what God says is true. We have to test it. Now, we hear the word test and we think of what? Classrooms and maybe pen and paper. But this verse was written before the modern classroom existed. And so when they heard the word test, they always thought of metal in a furnace. You know, the heat would test the metal and reveal what the metal was or if there was impurities in the metal. And that, that's the idea behind this kind of testing. What this is saying is we go from mind to test by thinking differently to testing differently by making decisions in the heat of the moment based on what God says is true, not on what our culture says is true. And as we do this repeatedly over time, it begins to put steel into our backbone. It begins to forge a different direction in our heart. It begins to force out the pickle juice of our culture and begin to replace it with the flavor of what God says is true and what he values. Now, the test is not what we say is valuable, not what we nod our heads to and say, yeah, that's right. But it's, it's actually reflected in the decisions that we make in the heat of the moment when we're under pressure. That's the test. And only tests, repeated tests of this nature can transform us. You can't just decide to become a different person. You can't just decide to have a different flavor to your life. You can't just decide to think very differently and have that be reflected in your decisions. You, you have to put these things into practice. Then if you do that, what this is saying is over time, you're going to get to experience how good, pleasing, and perfect God's will is. The idea is that you're going to move from intellectually giving God's ideas a thumbs up to saying, personally, this is right. This is good. This, this is perfect by experience. Now, for me personally, I've been testing God's ways for the better part of four decades now. And I just have to admit, I've, I've probably failed more tests than I've passed. But God's word has been the compass for my life. And whenever I fail, I, I try to get back up, dust myself off, and start heading in the direction that God says again. And I can tell you, after almost five decades, but the better part of four decades, I can tell you from personal experience, I approve of God's ways. Now, I know me approving ain't going to change you. You're going to have to approve it for yourself. You're going to have to experience this for yourself. You know, at this stage in life, it's interesting. Every once in a while, some people will actually approve of my life too. 
Usually it'll be said in statements like, wow, what a lucky guy you are. I'll be talking about some part of my life. And my thought is, boy, God has been far more kind to me than I deserve, but I'm pretty sure it's not luck. I'm pretty sure that this is just what happens when we try to really be serious about God's ways. Now, let me be clear. A life lived under God's restrictions is still a hard life. This is still a broken world, and we're still broken people. But it's a whole lot less painful than off-roading. It just, there's a lot fewer cliffs that I've fallen off of and rivers that I've gotten caught up in. I've gotten caught up in enough, but there's, there's fewer of them because I've, I've tried to test and approve God's ways. And so I, I'll just tell you personally, I, I began by becoming convinced that this is moral organ in my mind, not moral Saskatchewan. And now at 58, I've got enough experience to say, I promise you, this is moral organ. Actually, I think it's more accurate to say it's moral Afghanistan. Not just mountains, but roadside bombs that you don't want to step on, that can take a limb. I mean, the moral terrain out there is treacherous. And God is trying to protect us. So personally, do not conform. Publicly, do not argue. Don't argue. People disagree with you? Don't get in a debate. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. Now, that, this is hard for me personally. I love to debate. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. So this is a very disappointing verse for me. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Oh, man. If we can't argue, then how are we going to win? But must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, not mad and angry at those who disagree. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. What, what is a quarrel? How do you know when you're in an argument or a quarrel? Well, it's whenever a quarrel occurs whenever two people disagree and neither is willing to listen to the other. That, that's a quarrel. That's an argument. Now, if the goal was winning these debates, then argue away. But the goal is not winning debates. The goal is changing people's lives. Now, you can tell whenever you're in an argument with someone because what happens? The emotions begin to escalate. Inside, you begin to, and you can just see them begin to escalate too. And neither side is wanting to listen to what the other side is saying. So emotions replace thought. But this, well, I'll say almost never works. I've never seen it work, but maybe it has. I've just never seen it work. You know, we never respond to the augmentation of emotion or the, the increased volume of words saying, oh, you know what, now that you're yelling at me, I, I understand what you say now. Now, now I get it. Now, uh, you know what, now that you're all mad and upset, you're right. That never happens. What always happens is our defenses go up, and either, depending on how we're wired, we get out of there or we, we escalate with them. People never respond to an escalation in emotions and volume. What do people respond to? Kindness. If you're kind to somebody, 
That's the quickest way for them to open their heart up to you. Just be kind. So it says, so be kind to everyone. Then if, you see, then if they do get curious about your life, well, then you can tell them. Now, if you have that opportunity, though, you better be ready to, to be able to teach. That's the next thing. Be ready to teach. Now, not stand up on stage and teach, but be ready to explain in a rational way that they would understand why you've built your life this way and why you've made these decisions and what's going on here. If all you can say in response to a why question is, well, that's what the Bible says, well, that's not going to help anyone. Why are you doing this? Be able to describe it in a way that's helpful. But if you do get that chance to explain God's ways, do it gently. Why gently? Well, because you have to understand that we are all very attached to the pickle jars that we live in. There's one thing about pickle juice is it's very comforting. These jars, well, they're home. We didn't choose them. We were born into them. We were raised in this juice. And it is, honestly, it is a scary thing to look outside your pickle jar, let alone decide to build a new life outside your pickle jar. That's a scary thing for people to do. And that's why only God can convince someone to do this. Only he can grant repentance. Only he can turn people's hearts around because it's scary to step outside of your own juice. And so the purpose of this series is not to give you ammunition to use in an argument or to get you angry and all riled up at what's going on with our culture or get angry with the people in your culture. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose is primarily for you and primarily for me because we all need to decide for ourselves. How are we going to build our lives? It's our life and the life of our children and the life of our grandchildren that are going to be tested in the fire of reality. And if we lead our life and maybe our family after us into moral Saskatchewan and it turns out it's moral organ, we're going to pay the price and they're going to pay the price. So it's for us to evaluate how much of our thinking and behavior is pickle juice and how much is like Christ. I mean, if you, if you bite into the flavor of our life, is, is it really that different than this culture or not? That's for you to decide. That's for me to decide. Because if we are different, not just angry, then we just might get the chance to answer some of the questions that people might have who have just fallen off a cliff. And they're trying to figure out what's going on in life. And we might be able to help them in a way that's clear, in a way that's kind, in a way that's gentle. Next week, we're going to look at the key elements that make up the brine of our culture. And why there's just very little moral authority left in our culture right now. There's a reason behind that. The title of the message next week is Not Yet Rated. We're going to look at what, what really is making up the brine of our culture now. And by the way, I wanted to mention, Joanna mentioned that growth groups start next week and you can still sign up today. I, I would love to be able to create a context in which we could all then talk about this now. But, you know, second service is coming. I'm going a little long already. I'm done. And I would, there would be so much advantage if, if you could raise questions and have discussions. And this is what the growth groups are designed to do around the messages. 
is to give you a safe context in which to ask questions and hear input from other people around these topics. So if you've never been a part of a growth group, I would encourage you just to take the risk. This is a pretty short round this time, just a few weeks. But look at the list of the groups and sign up on the back of that card for one of the groups that fit your schedule. And if it doesn't fit your schedule, change your schedule. Make it a priority. So I would encourage you to do that. I, I think you'll get a lot more out of this series if you can not just hear what I have to say, but then get your mind out there and start talking and thinking about some of these things. So I would encourage you to sign up for a growth group. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are so easily blinded. Um, and we, we need to no longer be conformed to the patterns of our world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And, and we, many of us in this room, we've gone far enough down the path of what you say is right and true to be able to also say and testify with our lives that your, your ways, your will is good and it's pleasing and it's acceptable. It works. It's right. Our life still hurts and this world is still broken, but your paths reflect reality. And we just pray for our culture and our community as people are breaking down all kinds of restrictions the pain is just going to go up. God, help us to have a heart of kindness and compassion and be ready when people are hurting enough to begin to ask questions. Help us to learn how to teach in a kind and gentle way. But first of all, we ask that you transform us. That as the years go by and people get a flavor of our life, not just what we look like on the surface, but the flavor below that they would more and more begin to taste your ways and not the ways of this culture. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.